Welcome back to Audio Alni. As a result of COVID-19, Philadelphia did what a lot of cities across the country did in 2020. They scaled back spending. Among the first places the city made cuts was the arts. Here's Mayor Jim Kenney in May 2020. Sat down over the course of the last few weeks and made some truly painful decisions on what to include and exclude from this spending plan. We will delay and reduce our plans to invest in vehicles, technology and other equipment, things that help our government run. We will reduce hours and programming in our libraries and rec centers. We will reduce our support for special events, nonprofits and the arts. The coronavirus pandemic has deeply affected the arts in Philadelphia and now there's concern about what budget cuts could do going forward. Kenny gutted city arts funding along with the office that administered it. Those cuts were a leading story on the CBS3 news. If you're like us and involved in any kind of community-based or grassroots arts, then you know this is sadly a familiar story. Arts funding is often the first thing to go. Just ask our next guest. My name is Tony Rocco. Uh I taught for 20-something years, K-8 schools in North Philadelphia. Tony has seen a lot of budget cuts to arts education. In 2014, he was teaching at Stetson Middle School. That year, the School District of Philadelphia eliminated virtually all arts programming across the district, which meant that a photography program Tony and his students had built was now endangered. So what I did with a group of kids is we rebuilt it. Uh, we got donated equipment. and we rebuilt that dark room and made it a functional dark room again so there was actually a dark room in the school and that's how the program at Stetson started and we we you know I ended up calling that program the Stetson Shutterbugs that's where shutterbugs comes from they'd gone through the painstaking work of rebuilding a dark room space at Stetson that hadn't been used in years lucky for the shutterbugs before those 2014 budget cuts tony thought ahead He took his after-school program and made it into a nonprofit independent of the school. He named the group Photography Without Borders. It hasn't just survived, it's thrived. In recent years, Photography Without Borders now has two full-time staff and accepts students from Alney and Kensington. Thank God a few years ago, I just made the decision to retire from teaching and work on this full-time. For Tony, Growing the program has always been personal. I went to school for for filmmaking, but I really ended up falling in love with photography because I love the idea of me being alone with a camera and doing my own thing instead of having to like work with a crew of people to produce like a like a movie or something. I really love being able to tell my own story in my own way, and I love working in a dark room. You know, that's one of the things that made me really fall in love with photography. Me by myself working in a dark room, making these pictures. You know, with the chemicals. the process i really enjoyed it since its launch photography without borders has aimed to do more than just expose students to a new art form it seeks to empower them behind the camera to change how they interact with their environment to tell the stories they want to tell just like photography opened up tony's world as a young man i i always struggle with my identity with my cultural identity being of mixed heritage and especially with my colombian side but then i remember being able to go to colombia with my camera 
I used it to explore, you know, my mother's homeland and, you know, and taking those photographs, it was like, and, and seeing those places and developing that film and making those prints, it really helped me appreciate who I was. And then, you know, even exploring South Philly, where I was born and raised, like getting to know the neighborhood I grew up in, I, I really used it to better understand the world around me and who I was. And I, I enjoy doing that so much that I think that's also one of the reasons I really like teaching photography to young people, because I'm hoping that for some of them, they could do something similar. Like they can use photography as a way to figure out who they are. Uh, because I think a lot of us struggle with who, you know, what our identity is and and having a way through art, in this case, through photography to do that is is a wonderful thing. Over the last seven years, Photography Without Borders has grown into an organization with global reach, teaching hundreds of students the craft of taking and developing photos. There are Shutterbug programs in three middle schools and three high schools in Philly, in both Kensington and Alney, along with an exchange program with students in Columbia. In the last few years, students' work from the program has been identified and displayed in City Hall and featured in the national bilingual magazine Motivos. When 2020 began, it was shaping up to be a big year for Photography Without Borders. And we were so excited because we were building our darkroom. Uh, we were still using it. It was, the, the kids built it themselves. They painted it. They put all the equipment in. We put the lights in together. We did everything. And we were about to put enlargers in. They were about to learn how to print. And then COVID happened. But the work hasn't stopped during a pandemic, although, Instead of being in the darkroom together, they're mostly gone digital. It's kind of miraculous almost that we managed to be able to pivot. And, and also it speaks to the quality of our students that they didn't miss a beat, that we switched over to digital. We uh, got some digital cameras and they made the transition from working in the darkroom to taking pictures digitally. The voice you're about to hear is Dianara Rodriguez. She's 15 years old and identifies as Hispanic or Dominican. Daya has been involved with Photography Without Borders for three years. Um, my favorite place to take pictures is in the back of my house. Because it's not, it's not a backyard. It's more of like where people have their garages and, and where they park their cars, like, you know, behind their houses. And... But there's like, it's kind of like a triangle. So in the middle of that triangle, there's like a little space where there's like, you know, stray cats and like grass and a whole bunch of giant trees. And I like going there because there's a lot of wild flowers and flowers is kind of like my thing to take pictures of, even though a lot of people do not like flowers. But, you know, I really like taking pictures of the flowers back there. I think they're beautiful. And the trees. Uh, and basically just anything back there, because I think it's just interesting to find different kinds of things in, like, different kinds of new things in the backyard that I've lived in for um, four years. As Daya kept talking, I heard Tony's words in her answer. I think his perspective on photography has really rubbed off on her. Because, you know, some people outside of Alney are like, oh, Alney's like 
dirty or like ongi. There's a lot of bad people there. But when I when I take pictures there, I can show them that like it's it's beautiful here and this is my home. You know, it's um, there's good things in here too, not just bad. I spoke to a few students in the program who echoed this sentiment. Another one was Mirielis Almodovar Alamo. She's 14 and identified as Puerto Rican. Photography has allowed me to just see things that I haven't that a normal person might not normally see and see the beauty and things like only normally I'd walk past the street and just walk past and it's just it's just a street. But when I have like now that I have like a camera on me, it's like I'm looking around like, oh my god, that'll be such a beautiful photo taking it of that of that building right there. Or just different parts of Omni when I would go and travel. And it's it's really nice. As you hear with these students, art can be contagious. And I don't use that word lightly in the middle of a pandemic, but it's true. Art can be infectious. You see it with photography without borders. A love of art can jump from person to person, spreading joy and color and ideas through the world. And the beauty of art is that you don't need an MFA to catch that bug. And that's one of the things we really try to, to teach them, you know, is that anybody can grab, go buy a camera, right? But that doesn't make them a photographer, you know, like, because it's, it's your eye. The photographer can pay attention to things that other people doesn't pay attention to, can see things that other people can't and realize when is when is that special moment. And that really gets to what we really try to do in our program is give voice, give, you know, raise these students' voices and teach them that they can, through photographs, uh, tell people how they feel about their neighborhood and, you know, bring those things to their attention. This is how teenagers see Holly and how, and how they see their world, especially during this time of COVID. And those images are really powerful. And those stories sometimes aren't being told because, you know, kids don't get an opportunity to be asked what they think. And that makes their stories even more important. The theme of this episode is art and design in Alni. But I think a secondary theme is what Tony captured right here. You don't have to have your work in a museum to be an artist. Your work doesn't have to sell for lots of money. It's about the willingness to be inspired and to create based on that inspiration. That's really the only criteria for being an artist. And we found plenty of people in Alni doing just that. Before William Penn colonized what we now know as the state of Pennsylvania in the late 17th century, the only section of Philadelphia was home to a community of Lenape Indians. These particular Lenape were known to be tall, incredibly peaceful, and a spiritual people. Their totem was a turtle because they had a legend that at one point the entire world balanced on the back of a giant turtle. They shared a name with the language they spoke, the Unami, which means people downriver. Only is remarkably different today, of course. The people downriver, the Unami, were displaced long ago by English colonists. And in the context of modern Philly, the neighborhood is something of an upriver community. On a map, only lies at the tippy top of the city, 
It borders Montgomery County and is the second to last stop on the northbound Broad Street subway line. But the neighborhood is also upriver in the sense that it doesn't seem shy to go against the current. It's a neighborhood with a blue-collar tradition that's been revitalized in recent decades, but without the levels of gentrification that we've seen in so many other parts of the city. Over the last 20 years, Olney has become increasingly non-white. It's a true melting pot, home to large communities of Korean, Colombian, and Mexican immigrants, along with families from Africa and the Caribbean. Researchers believe it is the most linguistically diverse part of Philadelphia. More than one in three people who live there was born outside the United States. In this podcast, we're going to introduce you to some of them and hear why this neighborhood is so special. You'll also hear about the history of Olney, including the racism some people faced as the neighborhood grew less white. You'll hear from chefs and artists, teenagers and teachers, pastors and nonprofit leaders. You'll hear about its food, its thriving business community, and its built environment. A co-production of Only Culture Lab of Culture Trust Greater Philadelphia and Amber Art and Design, in partnership with June Lopez and Malcolm Burnley, this is Audio Only, a podcast exploring the beauty, complexity, and diversity of the Only section of Philadelphia. We hope you enjoy. Major support for the audio-only podcast is provided by the Independence Public Media Foundation. Additional support is provided by the William Penn Foundation and Collins Family ShopRite. Hey, buddy. Hey there, Linda. So episode three is our episode about art and design. And I have a couple questions for you. And one of the questions is something that I think about all the time. What would the world look like without art? Well, I think it would be a pretty dry and unimaginative place. And unfortunately, we're seeing that personified with some of our school systems here in the U.S. and a different place around the world where I don't want to name it as quite being strategic, These young kids are having their access to art and culture and freedom of expression, even in the physical sense when you talk about gym class, eliminated from their curriculum one by one. There is no longer a theater class, a music class, an art class, gym class. In a lot of these public school systems around the United States, especially in the urban sphere. And I think on a very mass level, you're starting to really be able to visualize and personify the outcomes of this neglect. And I would call it neglect because outside of the potential of fire, you could say that the the, the first real achievement of technology within the human experience is this personification of expression that we call art. When you teach a young kid that they're not able to grow up and be creative or imagine or have a space where that is deemed important, you're really nullifying part of the human experience and ultimate form of expression. You are talking to an artist right now, two of them actually, you know, and so of course we're going to have, I would say, a little bit more intimate thoughts to the idea, 
You know what I mean? But we've always, we've also seen the benefit of the idea and what it means for these young kids, especially in a classroom environment, to be able to express themselves or to be able to say, this is something that I have hidden deep within the core of my mind and through my own prowess of production and the manipulation of media with what I could do with my hands, I'm able to grab it from the intimate nether regions of my mind and turn it into reality. You know, that is as true and close to magic as anything else that we're able to do. Over the past year, we've been teaching at a Montessori school, and that experience has caused me to reflect on my own journey as an artist and where it began. That starting point for everyone is different. For me, it came from my family. But I just remember being a kid and my dad is really creative. And there was a painting in my parents' bedroom that my dad had made for my mom. And it was this oil painting of orchids. And he really loves orchids. He's really good with flowers, but he made this beautiful orchid painting. And it was just a small painting, but to me, it was everything. It was like the coolest painting probably the first real painting I had ever seen in, you know, I just thought it was the best painting ever. So I, I don't know, I just always wanted to create and be a creative person. But the more I've thought about it, the less I'm sure there was a clear beginning point for becoming an artist. And so this whole episode, we interviewed different people who are primarily visual artists uh, designers, people who are creating using a multitude of different mediums. And I think that's what to me is so is so special and so exciting about art is that when I identify myself as an artist, I don't feel the need to identify with a particular medium. I don't have to say I'm a painter and that's only I only paint or I'm a sculptor and that's what I do I only make sculptures I personally I identify as an artist because I feel like artists are creative problem solvers we look at the world and we design solutions to problems that we identify in our everyday lives or things that we encounter we we invent Things. We use art as a way to ask questions or express ideas or to explore and navigate the world around us. The voices we're about to bring you range in experience and artistic medium. And I think that they show the true measure of art coming out of Alni or any neighborhood isn't about accolades or anything that can be quantified. Am I an artist if I'm still a student? Do you have to always be creating in order to be able to identify as an artist? Who gets to say they're an artist? And I think that it's just really up to you as an individual to decide. Anybody could be an artist. An artist isn't the the outcome of your production. It's really more of an, a mindset and how you use your time and your creativity to imagine new possibilities. Some people in the art world, like Emily Coleman, who you're going to meet later, identified as artists when they were only a few years old. For some artists, it happens even earlier, like Kier. 
you know, I think it's something that you're born with. So along those lines, I tell people that I, I believe I was drawn on the inside of my mother's stomach in the womb. And, you know, when I was kicking, I was trying to create a, a, a rhythm that, that was a reaction to my environment. You know, I also believe that all kids are artists and all kids are geniuses and that the world one step at a time systematically peels those abilities away from them. But that's not everyone's story. A lot of people back into their art practices. They blink and discover themselves in artistic careers they could never have imagined. So screen is this weird thing that I don't really like, but I just know how to do and I've become good at it, so I just can't stop. That's Tim Naismith. I actually met Tim years ago with the late great Willis Humphrey, a founding member of Amber Art and Design. Tim would sometimes come by our studio. He would invite me up to your studios and we would just sit there and talk and go over stuff and I'd watch him paint. I'd watch all of you guys paint. And I thought, you guys are just so cool to me. It's been a few years since we last wrapped, but after the podcast launched, Tim reached out. It turned out he grew up in Alni in the late 80s and 90s. And that's also where his silk screening journey began. And I started in Alni in my parents' basement. My dad was in college. He started selling Gucci shirts. He was at Temple, and then I think the guy he used to buy the shirts from like upped the price on them. So my dad was like, all right, I'm going to outsmart you. I'm going to learn how to do this stuff. And then he learned how to sell screen pretty decently. He started selling these t-shirts, and then he made me do a lot of labor in our basement. And then uh, <laughs> that's just, <laughs> and I started silk screening. <laughs> I had no idea that Tim grew up here, but he really grew up in Alney. He played basketball and baseball at the Alney Rec Center. He even had a job delivering the Alney Times as a kid. When I was little, little, there was a lot. There was a lot of white people in Alney. There was just. Some of my best friends growing up were white. Um, but then as the block, as white people started moving out, the block just got much more diverse. Tim is biracial. His mom's black and his dad is white. So uh, we had a, a white family that initially were, were our neighbors. With two white families on both sides. Um, I remember because they were like my first friends. They were the twin, the twin brothers. They were a little bit older than me, the, uh, John and Anthony. But then they moved. Uh, a black family moved in. I became friends with them. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, a Cambodian family moved in. And it was the cool. It was kind of like the coolest thing for me because they they put up a gate, but it's because they grew a garden, so they would grow their own vegetables. On Tim's block, the ethnicities range from Haitian to East Asian to Portuguese, and he soaked it all in. But not everything about the cultural mashup that is Alni was so pleasantly nostalgic. Alni is an interesting neighborhood to grow up in. Just really, really interesting. So I was listening to the episode, and you talked about it being like a German, a big German neighborhood, and that, that's very true. Uh, the The racial overtones or undertones that was going on with the, the Nazi groups and stuff like that. I'm seeing someone burn a cross on someone's lawn. And this is like early 90s. So the racism has 
been there. I don't think it's like far removed. It happened when Tim was coming back from sports practice at the rec center. Uh, you know, on the AA and on the Eagles. And one day after practice, just driving past, there was a, a cross burning on someone's front step. That was like the craziest thing I've ever seen. Cause I like never seen it before. I'm like seven or eight. I just know it was a fire. Uh, my dad was kind of freaking out because he, like, I guess he he knew what it was, and then he eventually had to talk with me. But like, that was crazy to see. Part of Tim's experience was to notice the idiosyncrasies of the neighborhood. He was a kid, so a lot of his early memories have to do with playing. A big thing with Alan, especially growing up, we, like we wouldn't walk on the main street. We would walk down the alleyways. So we'll walk alleyway to alleyway. Uh, we used to like play basketball in people's alleyway, find out who had a portable court and like have a game of like three on three, two on two, five on fives. Another nuance to the neighborhood was the different ways people pronounced its name. So black people say Alani, and white people say Alani. Aside from the occasional bullying or fighting that broke out, Tim remembers Alni as being a uniquely multicultural and encompassing place, almost endlessly so. Alni is so big in retrospect that like, I don't really know where Alni begins or starts. And then there's always been a confusion for some people because like once you go down by Fifth and Fisher and, and closer down there, you know, you get closer to Logan. So some people, some people will want to claim Logan, some people will claim Alani, or some people will just chalk in and say they're from North Philly. When Tim would venture to other parts of Philly, returning home to Alani brought perspective on his own racial identity. Like, I don't know, I guess duality. I guess being, <laughs> being mixed made me have like crazy duality when it comes to race. But I would go spend the weekends with different parts of my family, and I'd be in like really, really, really white situations. And I'll be in like really, really hood situations and like, uh, it'll be crazy. Like, uh, cause I would go places with my dad. Like I'll be out in Malvern one weekend cause he, he went to Malvern high school. So we'll go to like a pig roast fundraiser. And the next second I'm at my cousin's house at 53rd, 53rd and Ludlow. Um, and we just seen people get shot at. Tim didn't say these experiences specifically influenced his work as a silk screener, but his artistic practice is so intricately tied to Olney, the connection is implicit. For one thing, it's where he started to experiment. And that's another thing, when people ask me how long I've been printing t-shirts, it's been for forever. Like, <laughs> the moment I can look over the board, I was printing t-shirts. And then even before that, I was making screens and doing stuff in the basement to help my dad. But artwork tends to be about place, even if it's only subconscious. And Alni holds special significance in Tim's family. I know my grandfather and my grandmother, from the story of I've heard, they met in Alni. Alni was still a big part of my family's history because my dad went out his way to get a house and in the section my grandma loved that he had a house in the section uh, she was very involved she would drive from Lafayette Hill to Alani all the time to pick me up or to spend the night and hang out in obvious and invisible ways Alani influenced Tim's trajectory the neighborhood 
and the relationships he built in Alni allowed Tim to take the art of silkscreening and make it into a viable career. In a practical way, it also provided him with a foundation to build a business network. Other artists we spoke to drew upon the neighborhood in different ways, including those that took inspiration for their artwork directly from Alni. But I definitely do realize that, you know, where my family comes from and how important it is to know, you know, your roots and where you come from. I have family members who do live in Alni and I pretty much grew up there all of my life. Um, I went to elementary school, middle school in the area, and of course, attended Alni High School. That's Sam Rodriguez. He's been working with the mural arts program for more than a decade, but at age 30, it wasn't so long ago that he was a kid growing up in Alni. In Alni, Philadelphia, growing up, seeing the different diversity in the neighborhood. I can recall having, you know, all sorts of friends, different ages, different races. And it was just, uh, it's a beautiful, you know, place to grow up. Um, it was very real, meaning that like any other neighborhood, you know, you can encounter violence, but you can also encounter um, people coming together and the community and church and businesses all helping each other out. Sam teaches in the Entrepreneurs Program of Mural Arts, which combines social justice training with arts education for young people. So as you can imagine, last summer, with the killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Walter Wallace Jr. here in Philadelphia, it was an eventful time for his artistic work. And in one moment, you know, the whole city rose. Um, we marched, the people marched, and there was a collective feel of wanting to, wanting reform and change. And as an artist, you sort of think about how you can use your art to make an impact. And that was honestly what was in my mind for a few weeks. Sam had just moved back to Alni during the first few months of COVID to be closer to family. When they began, the protests in response to police brutality affected him deeply. And I definitely saw the immediate difference between how community can either come together or harm itself. And in the Alni neighborhood, I saw both sides of the equation. Sam heard the calls for justice and change, but he also saw looting of local businesses. And that's where the idea for his project, Walls for Justice, came from. Bridging the gap between protesters and businesses during a tenuous summer. And I had a few friends who influenced kind of like the thought of going out there and painting and, you know, having a response for what's happening. And yeah, like what I'm doing now and the timing of it was just crucial uh, because it was at my, at my family home, my mom's house where 
I had my surplus of art supplies that I've had over the years. And I used those very same supplies to sort of fund the first three projects that I did in Center City. From his mom's house in Alney, Sam gathered about 100 volunteers and they headed downtown and began painting boarded up storefronts with messages of hope and perseverance. And from there, um, I used like my artistic abilities that I've learned um, through the mentorship and, you know, all along the way. And what was created was kind of like a grassroots movement that I helped be a part of and bringing it back to the community is I found opportunities um, just like the movement itself. You know, the movement was a way to show people that Black Lives Matter too. With the permission of dozens of store owners, Sam and his volunteers created custom designs that fit the brand and values of the store colorful, muralistic pieces that looked way better than the plywood we saw everywhere last summer. He called the project Walls for Justice. And, you know, the movement wasn't just about um, Black people, but it was about all of us as individuals for Brown and Black people. And I saw that opportunity, you know, as an Afro-Latino to bring that back um, to my community, and I was featured in like um, the news, but more importantly, the Hispanic news. And being a person that's advocating for other people in my community um, shows something because when I walk in the community, people do know who I am and who I stand for and what I do when it's nothing but respect. Walls for Justice garnered international recognition. He recently raised the money to turn the project into a permanent nonprofit. He hopes it will bring more opportunities for art and social justice to youth from Alni. And that is my message for everybody because I am not the best artist. I am not the best communicator. I am not the best at what I do, but what makes me different is where it comes from, you know, it's very grassroots, it's very heartfelt, it's very emotion-driven, and it's meant for good. Um, and so far, I believe the work that we're doing is good, and I'm gonna continue, you know, to fight. And not only fight, it's not fighting, it's just using art as a vehicle of change you know we can change people's perceptions with art we can provoke new thoughts and we can surely paint a new picture <laughs> for people sam's right you can excel as an artist in a variety of ways most of which have nothing to do with the quality of your brushstroke or anything that can be measured more than outcomes, it's an honest and authentic approach of an artist that makes him or her excellent. That's true of so many of the artists we spoke to. So people will say, well, I'll never be a fine artist or I can't do what you do. That's beside the point. You don't have to do. This is not a competition thing. This is a relaxing thing. This is therapeutic. 
Elizabeth McCorkle has lived in Olney since 1967 and is an active member of the First Presbyterian Church. She's a self-taught artist who got started by sketching portraits of Satchel Paige, the Black baseball player who's in the Hall of Fame. From that idea, I started to sketch other people from uh, history, other African-Americans from history. When she started creating work, Elizabeth's children went to Julia Ward Howe Middle School. She asked the school librarian if she could display some of her work during Black History Month. To continue that time, I think I only had about like 10 to 10, 15 sketches. And then later it grew because of that inspiration. The collection grew to almost 200 of that collection, which later I uh, was able to take, say, 50 to 75 to all kinds of uh, institutions, uh, element from elementary schools to junior high to high schools, um, some right here in the area. Now, the personal satisfaction she feels from creating art is enough to keep going. And any form of art, again, whether it be a musical instrument, whether it's a written, written word, and so many people that never knew, never had an idea that they had the ability to do some of these things when they become seniors and have more time on their hands and they belong to senior centers, they find that surprisingly, they have talent that they never thought that they had. And it's, and it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding just to, like I said, to be able to express yourself, no competition, just have, just having fun. That's what it's about. This mirrors the sentiment of another artist we encountered in Alney, Emily Coleman, who, unlike Elizabeth, was formally trained in her medium, which is an unusual one. Um, that's what my degree is in. So I, I'm actually trained as a glassblower in terms of my university training. Emily has lived in Alney for 20 years. And maybe more than anyone we spoke with, her artistic practice could be seen as a metaphor for the whole neighborhood. Well, um, Alney is, I would say, a true definition of a melting pot. That's because she makes art by shoving things into a 2,500-degree oven. We melt glass inside this furnace, and then we take glass out of the furnace using what's called a blowpipe, which is a about five-and-a-half to six-foot-long steel hollow tube with a, usually a plastic mouthpiece on it so that you don't break your teeth when you're blowing air into it. So you would you gather, it's called gathering, you gather glass on the end of that pipe. And then when you pull it out of the furnace, you have a big blob of glass. And if you just stop moving the blowpipe, it will fall on the floor. I love listening to how artists describe their process. Emily made glass blowing come alive dance of coordination and you have to constantly turn the blowpipe while the glass is cooling down enough so that you can start to shape it and you shape it using various different tools uh, things that you hold in your hand things that are molds that are might be sitting on the floor that you would press the glass into there's all different ways to go about it but um you introduce air into the piece you blow into the pipe and it makes a bubble you blow more air. The more air you blow, the larger your bubble gets. Shape it with your hands. Besides glass, 
Emily has taken up the creation of Chainmail, a medieval kind of armor during the pandemic. It's been a hobby while the pandemic has slowed other aspects of her practice. I sell a lot of work at craft shows and craft shows were canceled. Um, they still are canceled. So I don't have any reason to make work. And that's something that we heard a lot. This duality of the pandemic for artists and creators. On the one hand, funding and patrons were harder to come by with everyone isolated. It's been an emotional roller coaster for me. Uh, Business-wise, my business went down a lot. Uh, you know, I, once, I, I work very closely with a lot of schools. So I, there's no teacher orders for schools when schools when kids aren't in session. So that's an aspect of my business that I'm going to have to rebuild. But on the other hand, it's forced artists to try new things, to be more resourceful. I guess this is what COVID is teaching people right now. You just got to be prepared to do whatever you got to do to survive. After the Great Depression, we had the Roaring Twenties and the Harlem Renaissance. Don't be surprised if the pandemic produces historic art, too. Out of necessity and constraint comes true artistic innovation, which is why it's all the more important to not reduce arts funding in schools. The arts is pretty much what's holding people together right now. Watching movies, listening to music. You know, you need those things. And, and the, the crazy part is the fact that they want to take art out to schools, but everything is art. That voice you hear is Nakia Dillard. He's an actor who's grown up in Alney. He's appeared in all sorts of shows for the House of Cards to the Wire. And I want to leave you with something that he shared with us for the podcast because it ties all the conversations of this episode together so nicely. Everything came from somebody's mind. The desk they're sitting at, somebody created that. The pencil they have in their hand, the, the board, the, the architecture of the building, that's art, all of it. So if you wanna take that away, you, you stop in a lot of creativity and, and people to escape, escape from where they, uh, the situations that they're in, you know? So I'm a big advocate for the arts, you know. I think the arts need to be right up there with everything because if you are going through something, you gotta express yourself. You can't just keep that stuff bottled in. That's where great writing come from. You know, great music come from somebody's pain or somebody's situation. If you take all that away, you know, it's, it's I don't know. I just, I just wouldn't want to see a world without art, you know. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Audio Alni. In the next episode, we're going to explore parks and public spaces. You can find more information about our guest work and this project at www.alniculturelab.org and search for the Audio Alni podcast. You can also email us at audioalni at gmail.com. Be safe, everyone.